0: We are returning today to our study of the book of Genesis. We have been off for a couple months now, and so some of you are new enough that you haven't been here for the rest of Genesis up to this point. I understand that. I'm going to help you out in just a few moments, but I'm excited to get back to the book of Genesis. I've wanted to for several weeks, and uh, I'm looking forward to what the Lord is going to continue to teach us through this foundational book of Scripture. And as we get back to our study, I do want us to begin with a substantial review of what we've covered so far. Many of you have not been here yet to hear what we've covered in the book of Genesis, and the rest of you who have, I have no delusions that you've remembered everything that I've said to this point. So I want to begin with a substantial review of what we've covered to refresh our memories, to set the stage for what we're going to look at in chapter 17 here. We've set out from the very beginning that at its most foundational level, Scripture is one story, one unified story. It is a story of redemption. It is the revelation from God of, of how He is glorifying Himself through the salvation of His people and the restoration of the world that he has made. Where does the book of Genesis fit into all of this? Well, it is placed first in the Bible for a reason. It is, if you will, the front matter to the story. It lays the groundwork. It tells us where we're going and, and how he is moving history in that direction, the direction of salvation. The book of Genesis introduces this story by telling us how all things began, the why things are the way they are. The book of Genesis, as I see it, divides into three basic sections. The first section we could call primeval history. That is, the history of the origin of the world as a whole. How the world came into being what went wrong with the world, and how it is to be made right. We see all of that in chapters 1 through 11. That's section 1. Then section 2 is what we could call patriarchal history, or the next step in the story where God zooms in on one man and on one family as the agents through which he would reveal himself and through which he would bring the promised Savior into the world. And so the second section of Genesis zooms in on the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the origin of the nation of Israel through whom God would bless the world with the Messiah. We see all of that in Genesis chapters 12 through 36. And then the third section, we find the life of the sons of Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the middle section. And then the third section zooms in on the sons of Jacob as the establishment of uh, the people of Israel in, in particular. And it zooms in specifically on the life of Joseph. And it shows how God's people were removed from the promised land and taken into the land of Egypt. In this section, we find the growth of God's people beyond just one local family into a nation as God had promised. And it signals yet another stage in the story of redemption in Scripture, and it sets the stage for the book of Exodus. All of this we find in chapters 37 through 50 of the book of Genesis. Now my intention all along has not been to cover the entire book of Genesis in one sermon series, but to break it up into three according to those sections. And so some time ago, we began with volume 1, focusing on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. In those chapters, we saw God's perfect creation of all things and their perfect design. We read in chapters 1 and 2 that God made everything that was made and that it was good. It was incredibly good. It was unbelievably good. It was perfect in every way. But then in chapter 3, we saw the rejection of God's command. We saw the rebellion of mankind against what God had designed. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we see a contrast between now what had become an ungodly lineage through Cain and the godly lineage of Abel and ultimately Seth. One line growing deeper into sin because of his rebellion against God. We saw that the characterization of that sinful decline in, in humanity manifested itself primarily in sexual perversion and violence, which explains something of the world we live in today. But then the other line remained devoted to God for a time, characterized by worship. But then in chapters 6 through 9, we see the culmination of mankind's sinfulness. Mankind had become thoroughly corrupt, so God completely wipes out the entire planet and all its population with a catastrophic universal flood. He only saves one man, with his wife and his three sons and their wives. Eight people whom God, by His grace and mercy, had sovereignly set apart and rescued from His judgment on the earth. Now, at that point, we might have expected that the conflict was over, that with this new beginning, with these eight people on the world and everything else dealt with and everything fresh again, we would have expected that sin had been finally and forever defeated. But we learned very quickly that those eight people who came through the flood brought their sin natures with them. And we are reminded that the problem with mankind is not first and foremost out there but in here with our own sinful hearts. And in a very short time, we find mankind once again thoroughly corrupt. And through chapters 10 and 11, we see the all-too-familiar degeneration of mankind once again culminating in Babel, which is set up as as a symbol now, from here on out, as a symbol of mankind's organized and, and constant rebellion of God and rejection rebellion against God and rejection of his authority, and yet all along through all these chapters, with that downward spiral, we are also holding on to a thread of hope, because back in chapter three, when mankind rebelled against God and God pronounced his curse on the earth, he also gave a promise that from the seed of the woman there would be one who will come who will undo that curse, who will reverse that curse, and who will defeat the power of the evil one and save his people from their sin. Well, that brings us into our current study, which is volume two of Genesis, covering chapters 12 through 36. And here the focus zooms way in, no longer viewing the world at large, but focusing in on one family, one man And his descendants who had been set apart by God from the rest of the world to be the people through whom God would fulfill his promise and bring that savior into the world so in volume two the light of the gospel begins to shine a little bit more brightly and it will continue on through the rest of scripture to get brighter and brighter until it culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ In these chapters, the middle section of Genesis, in chapters 12 through 36, we find a divinely inspired record of the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the patriarchs of Israel. But lest I lose you right there into thinking that this is some dry and dusty, meaningless record of historical events for a nation that most of us are not a part of, This is our spiritual heritage. This is the beginning of where we have come from, if we are in Christ. These are our spiritual forefathers, tracing all the way back to the beginning. And by looking at their lives, we learn something about where we have come from. We see why history has been the way that it has been. We see how we have come to this point today in the world. We learn about how the world works. We learn crucial lessons about how to live a life of faith. And most of all, we see the character and work of God on display in a way that encourages us and compels us to trust in Him. And so these historical records, passed on to us in the form of stories, narratives, show us the truth about God who God is, what he is like. And they show us that all of this talk about faith and trust in this God is not just vague theological jargon, but is true to life. It plays out in the everyday lives of ordinary people. So as we look at the life of Abram, what we need to see first and foremost and above all else is who God is and what he is up to in the world. The goal of studying the lives of these men is not so that we would look at them and say, oh, look at how great they were, be like them. That's moralizing. That's not the, part of, that's not the point of the story. And the, part, the point of the story is not to allegorize it either, as if they were not real people who really existed. That would be to look at their circumstances and say, oh, what they faced is uh, that's, that's actually your battle in this area. We're not turning this into an allegory. This is real history. But from their lives, we see the God of heaven at work. And we learn what he is like. And we learn what it means to live a life of faith as we observe their lives of faith in this world. And so, we come to chapter 12. We see Abraham leave his homeland and his family to follow the call of the Lord. Abram doesn't understand yet where he's going and what God is up to, but God calls him, and so Abram obeys. In chapter 13, we see Abram selflessly defer the choice of land, the land that God had promised to him. Abram is willing to give it up for the sake of his nephew Lot because Abram understands if God promised it, it will come at some point in some way. He demonstrates faith there. He demonstrates faith again in chapter 14 as he courageously rescues his his nephew against those who would seek to do them harm. And it shows us that Abraham was not resting or finding his security in his earthly circumstances, but he was following the will of the Lord. He was following the character and call of God himself. And yet, the Genesis record of Abraham's life and the life of his descendants is not all about spiritual victories. We see some amazing displays of faith, but we also see some very awkward failures, uncomfortable scenes. We see that particularly in chapter 12 when when his faith fails him before Pharaoh. We see it in chapter 16, when they seek to take matters into their own hands and accomplish God's purpose in a way that God didn't intend, and they just make everything weird for everybody. And they pay the price for it as well. But from Abraham's life, we are ultimately watching God at work in an ordinary, sinful man. We are learning important lessons about who this God is and what He is up to in the world and in the lives of His people. We are observing important lessons about true faith and how faith lives in a world like ours today. We're learning who God is and what it means to follow Him. Abraham and Sarah are still works in progress, and we see that clearly in these chapters. And we are works in progress too, are we not? Their faith is still growing. And at times their faith falters, just like ours. And as we continue learning who God is and what true faith in Him looks like, as we strive to grow in our faith and in our spiritual maturity, as we seek more and more to walk by faith, these chapters lead us on by teaching us the grief that we cause when we act on our own foolishness. And yet they also teach us the unfailing grace of God's faithfulness to pursue us and to comfort us and to hold us fast and to bless us. Now, scattered throughout these chapters, this account of Abraham's life, we find three key passages that highlight the covenant God makes with Abraham. The covenant begins in chapter 12 with God's call of Abraham out of his pagan homeland and he promises that he will give him land, that he will give him descendants, and that he will get and that he will use him to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. This is the introduction. This is the the promise that God is going to advance his saving purpose through Abraham and his descendants to all the world. So here is where the gospel comes into a a little bit of a brighter light. And then we come to chapter 15, which builds on chapter 12, and is the ratification of God's covenant, the, the, the retelling of God's covenant, and the affirmation that God is indeed making this promise. To his people and then we come to chapter 17 which is our text for today which highlights the confirmation and the embrace of this covenant so in chapter 12 we have the covenant proclaimed in chapter 15 we have the covenant ratified and explained and now in chapter 17 we have the covenant confirmed and embraced now that's a long introduction to our text for today. But I want us to have the backstory. I want us to know how we got to this chapter. And it sets the stage for what we're about to see. And all of those things are reinforced in the text that we're going to read today. So we're in Genesis chapter 17. And We're going to look at the whole chapter. So if you'll follow along as I read. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So my covenant, so shall my covenant be, in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham, Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. You're getting a little bit of an emphasis here, of immediate obedience. And all the men of his house, those born in the the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. It has been now almost 25 years since God made that promise to Abraham in chapter 12. 25 years since he called him out of his foreign land and made this promise. Chapter 12 tells us Abraham was 75 years old. Now we read he's 99, going on 100. At one point in between those two chapters, at one point in those 25 years, God speaks again to Abraham in chapter 15 and confirms his promise. But these years with These 25 years had primarily been years of silence and waiting. Abraham's faith had been challenged and tested. Yes, he believed God, but he was having a hard time understanding exactly how God was going to bring this about and what it was going to look like. He didn't know the details exactly. He couldn't see the way himself. But we do find throughout these years, That Abraham's faith was in God and he trusted him at least to a certain degree that he knows what he's doing and that he has all power but now in the text before us God speaks again God speaks again after all of these years of waiting and wondering God speaks again and he confirms his covenant with Abraham. And he reveals more of his character to him and more of his plan. He brings some details into the picture that show him, yes, Abraham, I am actually going to do what I said I was going to do. He means to finish what he has begun. And What we're looking for throughout these chapters and through this chapter in particular is what it reveals about what God is like and how God is at work In the lives of his people. And so we can begin by looking just at verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3. And there we see a summary of the covenant. We see a summary of what God is going to reveal throughout the rest of this chapter. It's an overview of what the whole chapter covers. It gives us a snapshot. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Verse 3, then Abram fell on his face. So Yahweh appears to Abram, and he calls him, and he begins to reaffirm his covenant again with him. And Abram's response is to fall down before him in worship, and then he will believe God and he obeys God. That's what this chapter covers. But I want us to pause for a moment and just look at these verses again. And I want you to notice, first of all, how God introduces himself here. The narrator in the first part of verse 1 tells us that this is the Lord, and those capital letters mean Yahweh. This is Yahweh speaking here. But when God speaks, he uses a different name for himself. He says, I am God Almighty. That's the Hebrew name, El Shaddai. You know that name, don't you? I think some of you at least know the song. We're not going to sing it this morning. But you're familiar with that name. El Shaddai is a Hebrew name that means God the Almighty or God the Most Powerful. And do you know when that name is most often used in Scripture as a name for God? It is most often used in the context of impossible situations like Ruth or Job. So with this in mind, we could say that this title points to Yahweh as the Almighty God, the God of the impossible, because He is the God of all power. He is Almighty God. He is the one who is in charge of all things. He is the God of the impossible. Nothing is too hard for him. It's a common question throughout the Old Testament to ask this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And it is always presented as a rhetorical question because the obvious answer is no. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. But that is a question that is used to remind God's people in their darkest moments that God is in control, that He is strong to deliver, and that He is able to fulfill every promise that He has made, and He will complete everything He has begun. God makes this point over and over again to Job, As he suffers, he makes this point over and over again in the book of Jeremiah to the prophet Jeremiah as he weeps. And he makes this promise to Abraham and Sarah as they wonder at the magnitude of the promises he has made. In fact, over in chapter 18, that question will be asked, is anything too hard for the Lord? Not when this Lord is El Shaddai the Almighty God. He is the God of all power. He is the God of the impossible. Nothing is too hard for him. No promise is outside of his ability to fulfill and to keep. And so when we consider that this is the God, not just of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but all of his people throughout all history, this is Yahweh, who is God Almighty, then even we sitting here today can say with the psalmist, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. That is the testimony of Abraham as he waited for the Almighty God. Or as the Apostle Paul so confidently proclaims on the basis of this truth in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. He is the almighty God. He will leave no stone unturned. He will leave no detail unfulfilled. He will do everything. He is able to do everything he has said he will do. So this is a powerful way for God to introduce himself to Abraham in these circumstances. Is it not? This is a powerful way for God to reveal himself to you as the Lord God Almighty, who is the all-powerful God, the God who keeps all of His promises and fulfills all of His plans, no matter how impossible it may seem to us. That's how God introduces Himself. But I want us to notice also what God is doing with Abraham here. He says at the beginning of verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you you say of course this is about the abrahamic covenant what's the big deal think about this god is making a covenant with him he's not making a covenant with god this is new territory here gods don't make covenants with men gods don't have relationships with men what do gods do historically? Gods bark out orders to the people in hopes that so that the people have at least some hope that maybe they won't be incinerated today. That's what gods do. That's what religion does. Religion doesn't operate on covenant relationships with their gods. All other religions and all other would be gods simply require obedience with maybe nothing in return except that we just won't kill you there's no prospect of a relationship or union with these gods but Yahweh makes covenant with his people he loves his people he brings them into a relationship with him He brings Himself to them. It isn't just that Yahweh's people are devoted to Him. Yahweh is devoted to His people. Do you catch the magnitude of that? That Almighty God would have any interest in you or any one of us. The Apostle Peter describes it in these ways. We've already heard from this passage this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And with that, throughout the book of Hebrews, we are called to draw near. Who would be so bold as to draw near to a God? But God Almighty has invited His people to draw near. He has called us to draw near. This Almighty God makes His covenant with man, and he establishes a relationship with him by his grace, moving his redemption plan forward here through Abraham, leading to the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where the part about the the multiplication comes in. When he says, "I, I will multiply you greatly, that is a promise to make Abraham into a nation that will be a blessing to all the nations, specifically through the arrival of the Messiah the Savior of the world, the one who will come and defeat sin and the the grave and bring his people into union and peace with God. This multiplication will culminate ultimately in the preaching of the gospel of Christ throughout the world so that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just Abraham but us today, we might have this covenant relationship with God Almighty. So the Apostle Paul once again preaches in Romans 10, verses 9 through 11, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that's what this is pointing forward to. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, you will be saved. That is the Apostle Paul applying what God had started then to the New Testament Christian as well. So God has introduced himself as God Almighty. God is is doing this work uh, of, of salvation and advancing his salvation plan. He's making this covenant with his people. But then what's more, Notice also that God called Abram at the end of verse 1 to walk before him and be blameless. Almighty God looks at little old Abraham and says, walk before me and be blameless. Now, how can that be? How can it be that someone like Abraham could walk in a blameless way before God? How can a mere man ever stand before a holy God, much less walk before him in blamelessness? After all, going back to Psalm 130, is it not correct? Is the psalmist not right in saying, O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand in his presence as a sinner? We're all sinners. Abraham is a sinner. How can it be that such sinners could ever appear before the Lord and be blameless? Well, the psalmist himself answers that question in the very next verse. When he says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. How does that happen? How does the forgiveness come? The Apostle Paul explains it in Colossians 1. This isn't about walking in righteousness and earning our way into a blameless position before God. This has been the story all the way from the beginning. Abraham was a man of faith who looked forward to the promises of God being fulfilled. We are people of faith who look at the fulfillment of the promises in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's where we find our salvation. It is Christ, the eternal Son of God, who dwelt among men, who lived a perfect life in our place, who died a sinner's death in our place who bore in his own body the penalty for sin that we deserved and then rose again from the grave in victory over sin and death so that all who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life and would be reconciled to God and have peace with him. What that means is, at the cross, our sin was placed on Christ and his righteousness was placed on us. On all who believe in him so that we are now in Christ by faith alone. so if we or if Abraham are holy and blameless before the Lord then it is only because God Almighty has made it that way we already looked at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning in verses 8 through 10 that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith and this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. And if God has begun that good work in us, Paul says in Philippians 1, that he who began that good work in you will complete it. will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so what he says in Romans 8 is absolutely true. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, that's eternity past, That is, prior to conversion, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That's the future. And you notice it's written in the past tense. Why? Because every promise made is a promise kept with God. Because everything He has begun, he will complete. Everything he has promised, he will fulfill. And that's the completion of our salvation, our eternal life. That is the promise. That is the covenant that he has made with his people. And we can trust him to carry us through to the fulfillment of that promise through every circumstance we face in this life through every trial we endure, through every moment of waiting and wondering, and and that He will preserve us all the way until we see our Savior's face and live with Him forever. We haven't made it too far through our passage, have we? Some of you are already looking at your clocks. I had a feeling this would happen. So... Since we've just covered the summary of the covenant, let's move quickly through the details. Let's look at the proclamation of the covenant in verses 3 through 21. God speaks, and in verse 4, God reaffirms, in verses 4 through 8, actually, God reaffirms his covenant with Abram. He reminds him that it is a unilateral covenant. God is reaching out, God is taking the initiative. It is an everlasting covenant, verse 7, one that God intends to fulfill forever. It is a covenant that will reach out to all nations, verse 6, and will be a divine blessing to all the Gentiles as well. It is a promise, he says, of land, of seed or descendants, and blessing. And then as a confirmation of God's trustworthiness in keeping this spectacular promise, God changes Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, which had to feel ironic at that moment. Having never had a child through Sarah, only having Ishmael, and now he's called the father of a multitude. But it reminds him, it is a name, a daily reminder that God means to fulfill literally with physical descendants everything that he has promised that he will make him into a great nation. But then, not only with Abraham, does he, he also ministers to Sarah. And he communicates this promise to her. He reminds her, he shows her, she is a part of this promise. So he changes her name to Sarah. He reminds her that this child will come through her, not through some surrogate like they tried in chapter 16. And then in another act of prophetic confirmation, God names the child, isaac why does he name him isaac isaac means he laughs what's he talking about well abraham laughed are you telling me a hundred year old man is going to have a new are you kidding me sarah will laugh in chapter 18 she'll be rebuked for it but i think god is laughing here too why because he's watching his people struggle through these promises, and yet hold on by faith, and he is fulfilling his promises to them. And there is a certain level of delight here that God has in fulfilling his will in such magnificent ways. And then God institutes the right of circumcision among all the males who were Abraham's descendants or in his household. It was a physical sign of the covenant. Marking God's people off that they belong to him. And now we move into verses 22 through 27. And I want us to see Abraham's embrace of the covenant. Yes, this is God initiating. Yes, it is is a unilateral covenant, but it is something that man still has a responsibility and God calls him to action and Abraham obeys he immediately obeys the command of the Lord and circumcises all the males in his household, including Ishmael. And Abraham's obedience demonstrates that he believes the Lord, even though he can't imagine how this thing is possible. God has promised something that humanly is impossible. He does that quite often. I think God delights to do that and then he he delights to show himself as the all-powerful God of the impossible. Imperfect as Abraham was then, he was a man of faith who followed the word of the Lord, struggling at times, yes, but holding on to the word of the Lord because it was the word of the Lord. As we're told in Romans chapter 4, Abraham believed God And it was counted to him as righteousness. He was truly a man of faith. Now, in the light of everything that we have seen this morning, and I know it's been a lot, I want us to close with four simple points of application and instruction drawn from what we've laid out to this point. First of all, God has made grand and often bewildering promises to his people. Let's just get that in our minds. We're not always going to understand how it can be that these things are. In promising to deliver His people and this world from sin, God has indeed promised what seems impossible. In promising to give sinners like us peace with Himself, He has indeed promised what seems impossible. And in promising to carry you From this point to your eternal glory in the presence of your Savior, he has indeed promised what might seem impossible to you today. And yet, through the death and resurrection and the intercession and the future return of the Lord Jesus Christ, it has all been accomplished, regardless of what you think. And so we must believe in him. God has made grand and often bewildering promises to his people. But furthermore, secondly, God reminds us that he means what he says and therefore is perfectly trustworthy. We may not understand every detail, but he is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty, and he intends to complete everything he has begun. And Therefore, number three, true comfort and confidence True joy and steadiness in life are found in simple faith. Not in answering every question, but in believing God because He is God and He said so. We don't have to answer every question. We don't have to solve every riddle of life. We don't have to understand every move that He makes or figure out every detail. It is enough for us to believe that He is the sovereign Lord of all and that He is the loving Father of His people. It is enough. He is our refuge and strength. And I'm turning over very quickly to Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. You know how that psalm ends? Be still. Quit striving. Frantic Christian, settle down. And know that I am God. It doesn't say, and know exactly how this is all going to work out. No, stop it, Christian. And know that your God is El Shaddai. Your God is in charge. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted uh, in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. And so we rest. So fourthly, we must be reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is a covenant God who has made a way for us to be at peace with him and to have eternal life. But that isn't something that just happens automatically by nature. Scripture says that those who would enter into the faith of Abraham, who would be reconciled to God and have this covenant relationship, must renounce all other loyalty and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Friends, if you would know this true comfort and confidence that only God provides, if you would know this joy and steadiness in life that God provides, if you would know this rest that you can have in God Almighty, then you must be reconciled to God. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. And you must stop striving in your own strength to make everything fit. You must trust Him and follow Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful word of assurance